Welcome to the Do Divorce Right podcast. I'm your host, Becca Maxwell, and I'm here to help you transition through your divorce with ease and integrity, to not only survive the challenges of your divorce, but to thrive as you come out the other side of it with a much better life than you ever hoped possible. On this show, we talk about many different aspects of divorce, interview women who have their own incredible divorce stories, or those who can offer some great advice as you go through yours. The focus here is to help you find the strength and support to help you feel lighter, happier, more positive, and in a better frame of mind to face the inevitable challenges of your current journey. Okay, welcome back to the Do Divorce Right podcast. Today I'm talking to Meg and Susan who are non-diet dietitians. They help families through diet, you know, overcoming diet culture, managing their homes and families for healthy um, lives. And they have a beautiful podcast too called Lives Too Short to Count Almonds. And it really is. Ladies, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Ah, oh, thanks for having us. It's Thank a pleasure you. to be here. Yeah, it's great. Um, can you, would you like to expand on maybe how you got to where you are today? So what what motivated each of you to become dietitians specifically with, you know, the non-diet culture and trying to unravel that um, and starting your own podcast as well? Yeah, sure. So um, we've got similar but different backgrounds. I'm Meg for people who don't know who is who. <laughs> um, so we've both been dietitians for around about 20 years um, and working in that space, realising that um, a lot of focus on food can sometimes cause more problems. Um, this sort of prescriptive dieting and this real focus on weight um, was actually making it much more difficult for our clients to have a healthy relationship with um, their bodies and with food. And that was negatively impacting their ability to participate in health promoting behaviors. Um, and so we've slowly moved into the eating disorder space more just yeah. by accident than anything else, but found um, that we really love that. Uh, but there's only so much we can do one-on-one, um, you know, only have so many hours. Yeah. And so over the last few years, yeah. we've sort of been talking about, oh, by the time people get to us, there's often a really long story um, and so much unlearning to do. There's been missed opportunities where if early intervention had happened or prevention had happened, we wouldn't be doing all this un- unlearning and this really long-term um, sort of entrenched disordered eating behaviours. So we sort of got together and thought we want to do some yeah. um, prevention stuff and it makes sense thinking about in the home firstly. We'd yeah. love to get to schools and to sport around the world later <laughs> on, um, but we thought we'd start thinking around sort of families knowing that that's where people first learn their sort of values around food and their beliefs around food. Um, and so that's where we can hopefully um, just make there a lot fewer people who yeah. need one-on-one eating <laughs> disorder recovery work with a dietitian. It's something too that um, uh, clients will bring up themselves, yeah. like when they are, you know, when they first become a parent, they're all of a sudden quite aware of the intent that they want to bring to their own child rearing or their own parenting and want to maybe they reflect very heavily on how they mm. were spoken to and about as little children. And um, they're quite conscious that they want to do it differently, but they just don't have a framework to you do mean, it. mean, like every aspect of parenting? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's yes, often such, yes, yes. people have come from their own homes and their own belief system. There's often like two parents coming together and be like, wow, we think really differently. About yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and that can be, unfortunately, a bit of a recipe for disaster um, my, for the kids' um, own learning. My husband is, well, was a physio and a bit like what we were talking before, he's very tall and really lean and he's just that, he's a bit older than me and I just think he missed the whole body shaming thing. But he's a tall, thin man as well. Well, he's, he's also a man, so he misses a man. But he's just like, I remember him saying to me, what do you mean they don't like their bodies? Like it was just this like completely foreign concept. I was like, what? What world? What planet are you living on? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, like for him to sort of, you know, have any thoughts about food and bodies in any way is pretty bizarre and I'm like thinking about it all the time. Right. um, but and, yeah, the opposite in in you know the household. Sometimes like dads are really full on about how things should be, and mums are like, yeah. no, we're not going there. Yeah. So yeah. What, how do people come and visit you? So what you just mentioned, Meg, about by the time they come to you, there's really ingrained behaviours. There's a long story. There's maybe some challenges. Why would somebody be referred to come and talk to either of you in your private practice? Yeah, so it's really mixed bag. Um, I think as um, we've done more work in the eating disorder space, often it's people who have a recent diagnosis of an eating disorder, and that's often adolescents, um, but sometimes adults as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the stuff that gets us thinking about the prevention is almost, you know, we'll be have a client who's... Um, they're maybe in their 40s, um, obviously, who's sort of in their words, sort of like battle in vertical, like battle yes, with their weight yes. their whole life and they really want some help. They don't want to do any more dieting because they know actually the more diets I go on, I'm just weight cycling and my weight's going up from baseline. And they walk in and my first question for most of my clients is basically to say, look, by the time people get to me, there's often a really long story. So, you know, whatever you're comfortable with and as far back as you think is relevant, what's brought you to see a dietitian mm. today? And the number of times they go, well, when I was eight, I was taken to Weight Watchers or when I was 10, I got teased for my, for, I was put on a bikini and someone made a comment and, you know, this really long story, like it's not like, you know, two weeks ago I saw the doctor and they said <laughs> said yeah. something. Maybe it, the BMI is not in your favour or something. No. Way, way back. back. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we get referred. Sometimes it is, you know, just from a really recent diagnosis of disorder, but a lot of the time it is um, sort of older women who are just like, I can't battle with my body yeah. anymore and I don't. Yes. Our culture's never had an alternative. Our culture's always been like, oh, well, if that, that diet didn't work, fine, the next diet. That diet didn't work, fine, the next diet. Or you're just really bad at dieting. Yeah, isn't and- it funny that there is no one diet that's ever been? <laughs> this is the answer <laughs> because it's just they all follow the same cycle. Yeah. Um, and it's really worth, what, $600 billion globally <laughs> a year? Yeah, the industry. Look, I'm I'm a bit torn here because I want to just ask you all the questions to fix all of my problems, but I also (laughs) (laughs) really just need to think about the listeners and the the situation they're in. So, hmm, torn. Um, All right, so let's maybe focus then on the children of um, separated homes. So they've got two different families, Um, presumably... I don't know, maybe let's go straight into actually eating disorders and what are the behaviours as parents, whether there's conflict or no conflict, let's say there's two homes, how can we really protect our children from punishing themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen it with my clients, but I certainly have a friend. She has some three children, one of which really punishes herself Um 
through food because of this high conflict and the stress of the divorce and the separation and it's heartbreaking. So how can we as parents going through a separation and divorce who want to have the most integrity, who really want to protect ourselves and our children through this, what can we do to make sure that we're doing our very best while also managing the shit show? That, um, that, that child that you just referenced then, just how we all respond to conflict, like some of us will feel it in our gut mm, and yeah. that self can make, like just physiologically can make eating really hard, yeah. regardless, like in the absence of an eating disorder. Mm. And I think, you know, just I will get to the eating disorder stuff, but I just think recognising as parents and if we are dealing with these really hard situations, how each of our children might respond individually. Some of them might go quite quiet. Some of them might feel really like in their body and helping them regulate. That would probably be the first thing, like, oh, you know, so whether it becomes something that is a a story of of punishing or if it's actually I just feel this really strongly in my body and it makes eating really hard. Mm -hmm. And so I think then from a parent perspective, like, all right, during this time, like what can we do to help you sort of feel it less in your body maybe or process it? And then how can we make sure you still get to eat enough? Because I think what's... Um, what do we change? What a lot of people... Yeah, and I think what a lot of people don't understand around eating disorders, so often people think it's just purely someone wants to be thinner and so they um, start dieting and then they develop an eating disorder Yeah. or someone develops an eating disorder and then they, you know, their body really changes and they become more rigid and all of that. What we're starting to understand about eating disorders is there's a biological basis, a genetic predisposition that is sort of triggered by not eating enough, getting into deficit. And so that can be because there's a super duper active kid who just can't keep up with her requirements. Yes. He can as a kid with anxiety, which as Susan mentioned, really suppresses the appetite. Yes. Um, or it can be that sometimes the um, sense of control from managing your eating or not eating so often at their heart there is this distress tolerance they're they're actually about distress tolerance whether it be numbing out or distraction or sense of control and so if we think about you know when when kids parents are splitting up that's a that's a stressful and distressing situation yeah and so helping to make sure that they don't start using food as distress tolerance but but by developing other distress tolerance because we can't take away the distress it's happening that's right. Um, minimise as much as possible. We can't avoid it completely. So we're going to have what are the really productive distress tolerance strategies that we can help our kids with so they don't lean into destructive, but it's still at their heart, distress tolerance. Yeah. Um, because you think about, like, what strategies do children have? Yeah. What like as adults, you know, for better or worse, we can pour ourselves a glass of wine or we can take ourselves off to dinner with our friends and... <laughs> You know, and really debrief. Whereas children, they don't have a lot of agency. They can't just drive down to the shops and buy them. You know, but food is often where they can um, soothe by either maybe eating or not eating. So I think recognising, like knowing our own children and their own responses and what, yeah, exactly, like what are the productive ways to get it out of your system or this is really hard and it's okay to feel this really hard exactly it's not okay to not eat (laughs) exactly you don't know who might actually trigger the sort of by getting into that deficit um because not everyone will not everyone has that predisposition and so really trying to 
being or the opposite, which would be the overeating. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it to also be, you know, become quite a serious eating disorder. And that can be on the backside of restricting. Like, mm. oh, I felt so sick all day. I didn't eat. Oh my gosh, I'm so hungry now. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think as parents, being able to go to, to help the child understand it, mm. you were feeling really sick. You know, we maybe should look at some bland, easy things across the day so you can eat, you know. I'm going to remind you that, you know, I'm going to make sure you come and have lunch with us, that sort of, so because, and that that extreme hunger later, of course you felt extreme hunger later. You hardly ate anything all day. That's fine. Your body's just trying to keep you yeah, safe. don't have to panic about it. I think sometimes yeah. really like we see particularly what might look like overeating or binging and really freak out about that and we name it as a problem when and maybe we're like, all right, actually when I think about the last couple of days and what's been going, that really makes sense. Mm. Let's make sure we can get you back on track and eating enough during the day when you need it mm. rather than sort of branding this particular behaviour as a problem because that then starts to, that becomes the story. Yeah. Of the of I'm a I'm a binge eater. I've I've got no control or I yeah. my, you know. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's come to some practical strategies because um what I'm hearing here is like even if there's I loved what you said, Meg, about the distress tolerance. We can't make the distress go away. We need to help create, you know, tolerance for that. So let's talk about practical strategies for that. Because Susan, you were talking just now about you know, the, the lunch day, they, they might not have eaten anything and then they come home and they maybe gorge or yeah, yeah. What, I'm, what I'm thinking here is like a non-judgmental track because the, the mum, the dad, they won't necessarily know the intake of the day. And certainly if there's two homes. So yes. I, I think and I, first, <laughs> like noticing, I, think I always tend, I always think about communication, behaviour communicates something. So rather than like assuming what we think we're seeing, like pause yes. and yeah. ask, yes, oh, you know, what would make this make sense? Yeah. Why Why do you think you're so hungry right now? Two different homes. Um, and if sometimes kids are actually um, restricted by a parent and that is part of they perhaps don't understand actually kids need a lot of food. Our culture has this really messed up idea about how much is enough food. Um, and so if a child is not getting enough food predictably, when they do have access to enough food, they are likely to, over, to I guess, sort of overcompensate or, you know, eat past their point of comfort because they're not sure when they're going to get enough. So there's an extra complication when it's between houses. There may be a house where they are restricted, either intentionally or unintentionally, and then a house where there's, you know, less rules or there's just more open access to the cupboard. And that for the parent would say, oh, they're constantly at the cupboard. They're always going, they're eating so much, um, not realising perhaps it's actually a reaction to, well, it's opportunistic. At your house they can, and they know that when they go back here, they might not be allowed any of those foods. Well, those might, might not even exist. Those foods not, there might are not no be chips in or biscuits or lollies. Yeah. So, again, trying yeah. to have that, not have that all or nothing approach of you know there's either all of the um party foods are available here and none of them are here that's just going to drive that sort of food seeking yeah. behavior okay. so so knowing that we can't necessarily affect the other house as much yeah. as we'd love to influence it um yeah. and you know yeah. if you've got a great 
partnership or a, a great division, like a, a great separation, you might have an opportunity to have that open conversation and say, can we have similar rules in both of our homes so that or, or similar behaviours? But more often than not, especially yeah. in those early years, it's like you're on your own. You make your rules, I'll make mine. Yeah. 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 Sure. You're going to try and tell me what to do in my house. Quite frankly, you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a similar conversation that you may have um, just around um, different families have different values when it comes to food. And that's okay. Here's what we do in our house. And, you know, I have those conversations with my kids. And they're like, why don't I get a lunch order every day? I'm like, oh, well, it's not judging the family who has the lunch order every day. It's fine. But, oh, well, different families have different amounts of money. They have different time. They have different thoughts on food. And so that's what they do. Here we do this. And when you're an adult, you get to decide what you do. Um, So just so I guess sort of that I understand that no one's not good and bad. We don't want to be judging one or making the kids become the food police for the other parent or anything like that. Let's not put them position but just be like listen to your body that would That's, be my yeah. life grounding is are you before you're eating are you hungry what do you feel like eating stopping when you're comfortably full because it doesn't really feel nice to be like up to the eyeballs um, and that reassurance too yeah. that it's okay there's yeah. plenty there your body just, can handle you it you know you can have more if you if, you know if you want more later have more later but let's let's put like a a human body sized amount out in front of you yeah, first. Yeah. Rather than like the full, you know, party bag of like Doritos, let's pop some in a bowl and let's have some of, you know, a few other things there. I think that like really verbalizing safety yeah. and enoughness. Yeah. So if you are in a house where the children are like, oh, cupboards, you know, open and, and it's all on, really like that's you, you're still the parent. You get to go, right, let's hang on a second. Let's bring this to the table. Mm-hmm. Let's pop this in a bowl or on a plate. Let's sit down and let's really like, check in. Yes. Like little children do need our help to learn their body. Like I've got three girls and, you know, the number of times they've said something about having a, my tummy hurts. You're like, do you need to go to the toilet? No. Are you hungry? No. Are you full? Do you need, you know, oh, hang on. And off they run to the toilet because, <laughs> They do you know, <laughs> they're still sort of learning all of that. So, And I think it's really important not to, again, we're talking about not trying not to add distress. Yes. So if a, one parent has really strong views and is really in diet culture themselves and really sort of afraid of sugar or junk and judging all this yeah. food, which is what the child is given at the other house. Yes. In a really awful situation, yes. thinking, is my mum poisoning me when she <laughs> lets me have cake? Yeah. And then they don't really know what to do. So really going, you know what, nutrition matters over a lifetime, but not in any one really short period of time. So you'll be fine. Yeah. You'll be fine. You don't yeah. have to worry. Eat what is given, listen to your body, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, we don't want the kids to sort of be in this position where they're feeling really stressed by what they're being fed. Because if they're being fed regularly and enough food, like that's that's the that's what is, yeah there's an additional pressure that comes in at that kind of preteen stage where they're so much more aware of what's happening in other homes as well whether it's their homes or their friends homes and it's you know I feel I'm being told I'm so strict I'm the police like I'm the people you're so unfun I'm allowed to have unlimited candy and whatever my daughter tried to convince me this week that when it's movie night at the friend's house, they get $50 and they can go to the shop and choose whatever they like. I was like, I don't want yeah, that for a hot minute. <laughs> like, no, no, it's true. <laughs> and, that's, and that's why I come back to it. Like, it's like, even if that is true, that's not what we do. 
That's you're so unfun. You're so strict. We always yeah, get yeah. a big bag of lollies and a big bag of chips. I'm like, all right, well, maybe there's a compromise in here, but I'm not giving you $50 to go and buy whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> we have that conversation around the, you know, I'm the adult. Like I have my, right, my prefrontal cortex is fully developed. And so I can think about <laughs> the big picture stuff, nutrition, the budget, the convenience, what's coming Consequences. up. Consequences. You can't. Yeah. It's not a yeah, your kid. You know, like what's fair as a treat versus what's fair as an everyday. Um, yeah. It's it's really hard for children, I think, to self-regulate. You know, you mentioned a, a couple of times now about not necessarily intuitive eating. I don't think you use those words, but you're like checking in with your body and asking what do I need. And I love that, but I'm not sure I trust them. So help me, help me, help children understand what they need. There's a conversation I'll often have, like my kids will go, I'm so hungry, have we got any chocolate? Yeah, and where I'll, are the tips, Mum? What's wrong with you? Do you want chocolate or are you hungry? Because mm. chocolate's not very filling. Like we probably do have chocolate. There's usually chocolate. But are you actually hungry? Do you need something more substantial than that? And they're like, oh. Not yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just really feel like some chocolate. Yeah, yeah. Right. Can I think it is hard. I think it is hard to like the idea of trusting mm. children when maybe we don't trust our own bodies. Yeah, is really hard. Oh my like, god, that's true. Can we go down that rabbit hole? All the time, <laughs> every day, and all day. <laughs> all <laughs> right. So, chocolate and told I could have enough, I would never stop. How are they going to stop? But like they do. Mm. You know, if you've ever been at a, like, say, a birthday party and you see some little, like, little, little kids, like toddlers, and they've got, like, you know, they're, they're walking around, they've licked all the icing off a cupcake and they're just holding the cake and they've, you know, they've got a sausage and, like, it's all just texture and flavour. And they'll just put it down. And they'll put it down on. and they'll bite half of it. No, don't like that. They're really exploratory and they're really sensory. They haven't learned any of the... Good food, bad food. Rules. Yeah. Until adults kind of get you. You can't possibly eat all of that. Yeah. Or no, before you, you got to have your vegetables before you You have that. You got to eat those blueberries before you have the cake. And I think that, particularly with that, what you mentioned, um, like sort of with pre adolescence or, um, you know, that early adolescence, bodies are changing and appetites are really, really big. Like there's huge growth required. Um, And unfortunately, you know, we hear, like, I've got three boys, right? It's like, oh, they'll be eating out of house and home. You won't be able to fill them up. Oh, my goodness, amazing. They need so much food. And then my friends um, with the girls, like. Three girls. I've they never be heard like, that. Oh, is that too much? Don't let yourself go. Oh, you really need all of that. No one gets so excited no about one, girls' appetites. No, even though they actually need it. So the trust gets undermined depending on the age and the family and all of that. But, you know, the trust in body gets undermined in our culture pretty early, particularly for women. Mm, so okay. that's- how can we deprogram ourselves to get to a better place? Can I just say yeah. I listened to your podcast, your most recent one that you just loaded up. Okay. Which one was that? Okay. <laughs> on the way, the yoga teacher. Now I can't think of her name. But that checking Maybe okay. Anyway, go on. But there was a there was a conversation that you guys were having about meditation and about listening to your head and listening to your body. And yeah. it's really the same thing mm. because like we learn all the stuff about 
fats and carbohydrates and calories and macros. Count your almonds. Not counting up. What is our body telling us? Yes. And like if we want to inhale all the lollies because we never get to have them, at a point our body is going to go, yeah, I feel exhausting now and maybe I feel a little bit sick and a bit unsettled and, you know, because there's a whole lot of stuff having to be dealt with in your body right now. Um, And we sit on a cultural backdrop of reinforcing not trusting your body. Yes. Like if you're too hungry, we've got a medication for that. Drink if some water. Drink some, do you want me to drink some water before you have your have your dinner? Brush your teeth so you don't get you're not nervous, so you don't snack after dinner, even if you haven't eaten enough all day and you're really hungry. Um, so often it is actually, and you mentioned intuitive eating. So in the original sort of intuitive eating book, the principles, the first principle is break the diet mentality, and then we get to honor your hunger and respect your fullness. Um yes. While we're trying to control the size of our body in particular, it's oh, almost impossible yeah. to have to fully trust your body. Yeah. Um, so there is letting it. go of the scale, oh, letting go yeah. of the numbers and genuinely trying to come to a point of, oh, am I hungry as a yeah. starter? And, and if I'm not, okay, why am I wanting to eat? Yeah. Um, and it's actually having, having like a safe structure in place yeah, that's of meals and snacks. So that you can, you've got lots of opportunities regularly to check in for ourselves, but also for our children. I think and that's so, so important for children, having rhythms and predictability um, so, yes, friends, so they know what's coming. And I, with sexual appetite, so yeah. when they come to the table, they are a little bit hungry, but they're yeah. not forcing them to eat so much, but just so they know, okay, well, I'm ending the meal now. Yeah. You don't have to eat it, but there's nothing else until, and then saying whatever time it is in two to three hours' time. Okay. Yeah. So when they keep asking, can I have some vegan or some food? No, it's not eating time. Kitchen's closed right now, but we're having lunch yeah. at so-and-so o'clock. You can have water. That's totally fine, but you'll And be you well. might. You might be like, oh, hang on a second. We'll bring this forward half an hour yeah. or so because I'm not yeah. going to listen to this for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, like, and you might notice that they're like they sort of ate everything they had a bit more they said they were fine half an hour later like they're saying they're hungry again and it just yeah are you though like remember just ate all those things like what where are you feeling that you know so those conversations when we're having those conversations with children they go into our own brain as well you know 100 yeah that's the language like well am i hungry i don't know like uh I had breakfast, like I had, like, you know, then I, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm mm. actually feeling a bit like flat after that conversation that I just had. And I need to feel a little bit picked up. And the way I've been to, I've known to do that is with something yummy. And that's fine. If but it's being able in to, a realm of different coping strategies. Yeah, just to be able to go, is that what I want right now? Yeah. Do I have any other ways? So if I don't have any other ways, mm then I'm sort of a bit stuck. What I, else do I like? So I think that sense of building a, I love, a array of tools. Yeah, I love that because you're in in creating great positive strategies for your children, you're actually reprogramming your own. Yeah. yeah. Programming, deprogramming, whatever. Reprogramming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, permission yeah. to explore, like, what needs, like, we have as humans, like, you and know? food, I think our culture, again, because we're so afraid of weight gain and all that, we've really gotten to this point where we think any eating 
that's just because it's delicious or enjoyable or because it cheers us up or whatever. It seems like a really terrible thing yes. that we shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And if food is the only way you have to suit, if it's the only thing you lean to every single time, um, then yeah, it might be a problem because it's, you know, you're not really listening to your body. You're most likely actually not even letting yourself have the enjoyment of the eating because you're probably beating yourself up for doing it afterwards. So you're not even letting it be what it, you know, what it was. Yeah, what exactly. It was. Um, whereas if we could just be like, you know what, sometimes food can be the thing we, that we have and that's okay. But if it's the only thing, or if you're not letting yourself even have the pick me up from it, cause you're then just like oh, talking down on yourself. Yeah. Um, let me pull on that thread a little bit. Because I want to, I want to bring it back to parenting children. You don't know what's happening at the other home. Perhaps you have your own judgments that you're trying to put aside that the children are either eating too much or too little or whatever at the other home. You don't want to try and overcompensate. I'm pulling at the thread of multiple coping strategies because, you know, I do love the idea of being able to treat with an ice cream. Like let's, let's do a cycle. And when we get there, we're going to, you can have a French tea. What do they call bubble tea? Or you can have an ice cream. And that's one of one of our fun kind of things to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what are other coping strategies then or other other healthy rewards and options? Give me some time. Yeah. Quality time together. Yeah, yeah. You know, depending on the age of your children, like it might be, you know, sitting watching something together or oh, sure. like reading a mm, book to yeah. them. Like little little and even if they're not little sometimes you know they quite like that anyway just being read to yes absolutely even preparing a meal right that can be bonding we're doing that together as well and just how do we not how do we not let ice cream be the bad guy or food be um you know as you were saying we don't allow ourselves to enjoy the food if we've started thinking that eating of any kind is a bit naughty so see those movie tropes where everyone's like crying into the ice cream they're like (laughs) Just enjoy these stories. Right? Yeah. Unhappy, grab that tub of Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So one of the things which, you know, probably not when kids are really little, but you can start the conversations, but certainly for um, adults, we often end up eating with our brain, not our mouth. And what I mean by that is the idea of, oh, this food's on a pedestal. This is naughty. I shouldn't let myself have it. Now that I'm letting myself have it, it must be amazing and I'm going to eat it till it's gone. Um, yeah, I will with clients quite often actually do mindful eating activities. So if they bring in the food that's buzzing that you feel like you have no control around, bring it in. And we're actually going to slow it right down, and we're going to really explore this food. And almost every time, not every single time, but almost every time, after a couple of minutes of genuinely tuning into your good old Ben and Jerry's or your Tim Tam or chips or whatever it is, it's always those sort of buzzy foods. We get to the point of, oh, that was delicious. And it's no longer actually delicious. Um, so there is this um, cool little concept, elementary altresia, which is after a couple of minutes, the pleasure, like the do taste buds reduce the strength of signaling to the pleasure centers of the brain. And so food that was delicious two minutes ago is no longer um, actually as pleasurable. And so if these are foods which are just about pleasure, we're not trying to make healthy, they're not about health, they're je- well, they're not about physical health, even though <laughs> they might be about social health and they're just pleasure. They're just yeah. about pleasure. So let's actually make sure that we're tuning in going, am I getting pleasure from this? I remember the first time I did a mindful eating activity, 
um, was was with um, Dr. Rick Kaufman, who wrote a, one of sort of the early book, non-dieting books, which is um, If Not Dieting, Then What? Um, and it was with a mini Snickers. And I previously would have just like smashed a couple of those and been like, oh, delicious, great. Um, and so we slowed us down and we really tuned in. And I got halfway through a fun-sized Snickers and I was like, oh, I don't really like Snickers. These are really oh. salty. There's a bit of bitterness here. This is not my, I don't like I this. I, I, I don't like Snickers. Um, but I'd never slowed down and tune. I've gone, yes, yeah, Snickers, they're part, they're, you know, they're on a Chocolate pedestal. caramels. They're, 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 they're called right? fun. They must be fun, right? The fun side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas once I slow down, and look, I mean, I love chips. And um, so I've done this mild activity with other people and I would often do eating at the same time. It helps. Often people who have a lot of fear around eating or feel like they're going to be judged, it helps if their dietitian eats the same food yeah. at the same time. So yeah. I'd often the activity and actually eat with them at the same time and realised, oh, I love plain chips. A couple of mouthfuls in, there's this metallic, bitter, my mouth is coated, that is unpleasant, this is a pleasure food, so I'm going to stop now. It doesn't mean I never eat chips, I still eat chips, but I know I get this little signal of, oh, that's right, that metallic flavour, I'm no longer enjoying these chips, but if I stop eating them now and come back in a couple of hours, I get that pleasure again. Yeah. So it's really what is the goal of this food? Is it pleasure? Okay, cool. Are you getting pleasure from it? Right. <laughs> or are you feeling miserable? Are you actually yeah. not even enjoying the taste and beating yourself up for eating it and feeling and a bit how, how do we give ourselves permission then to throw something away? Right, the, the, you, you haven't picked up a mini-sized uh, sneakers. You've picked really up a right? full-size sneakers. You've, you've got that sunken cost fallacy, which is, well, I've just spent the money. Okay. I've opened the thing. I'm going to... How do we give ourselves permission to just put it the hell out, throw it in the bin? I think it comes down to our food story. So I often um, use this sort of analogy of a tree. If you sort of think of ourselves as a tree, um, when people come to me as a dietitian, at the end of the day, what they're wanting to change is their behaviour. So we sort of think, okay, the leaves, or the, think of the picture of the tree, the leaves is the behaviour. It's the obvious bit. It's the bit we're actually wanting that gives us some clues. And for people who I work with, it's what we want to change. But information, just telling someone what to do, doesn't work because behavior doesn't come from nowhere um so i sort of usually you know, giving someone a diet or telling someone what to do kind of like watering the leaves you have shiny leaves you can white knuckle it for a few weeks <laughs> maybe the first time you've done it for a, a, maybe three months mm-hmm. the first time you go around the diet cycle but at the end of the day it hasn't changed where the behavior is coming from so we think of the trunk of the tree is our thoughts and behavior is our thoughts and feelings which is what most directly impacts our um our yes. behaviors under the surface in the roots that's where our values our experiences our beliefs and assumptions are and experience is a massive one so if you feel like every time I get a Snickers I have to eat the whole thing I've got no control that's a story you're telling yourself so when you get halfway through the Snickers and you're like oh I don't think I'm liking this anymore you've just the idea of throwing it out it's just not in your no, not when your mother tells you, you know, there were starving children in Africa. Oh, yeah, that's, and that's an experience route. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The discomfort of, hang on, I've got values around food waste and I've got, that's because of all yeah. these experiences. So sometimes it's actually practising, you know what, I'm not a bin. This is not going to make a difference. How about I actually intentionally do this? Not because I'm trying to eat less, but because I'm trying to put some different experiences in under the ground. Um, and so there's some different sort of activities and stuff that we'll often do with like just trying to help them put new experiences in under the ground so they can pause. Because what happens if we just do what we do, 
oh, I've eaten everything on my plate again. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm so terrible. So the tree analogy helps with that real compassionate curiosity to go, yeah. be a really good reason why you're doing what you're doing. Like for humans, this usually there's a reason. So if we can be really, rather than just heaping on, if we can be really curious and go, oh, what was I thinking? What was I feeling? What might the root be? So let's say that somebody else is doing that. Let's talk about children. So a child can't step away from an open bag of crisps or they can't, you know, open, just have two Oreos. They need a whole thing. How do we help them get to the what's really happening here? I think in the moment maybe it's a little bit easier because we can have like a stop, pause, what's going on, how do we feel, how does that taste, have you had enough, how are you feeling? really hard to do that without judgment and so anybody listening who's like i feel like a bitch to my children you're not alone but what about after the fact it's a reassurance that there's going to be oreos in your future so quite often um, it's not actually about the or it's about getting my fair share um, or about not. So I remember families saying like, oh, the kids, they just whip through ice cream. We have ice cream night. And what happened is they'd have a tub and they'd all have a spoon. She's like, it's like animals. <laughs> it's nothing to do with the ice cream. They just want their fair share. Yeah. It's just spoon it out into little bowls. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and then you can have your share. Yeah. Your fair share. In my family, we do holiday cereal. We buy like my cereal. By the way, that's what we do. Only during holidays, they can have the shitty cereal. Yeah. Three boys. Um, and what I was noticing is that was just like, go on. I was like, hang on a minute. Um, so now I, at the beginning of the holidays, I buy three boxes of whatever it is. They write their name on it. They have a box each. It's like, this is your cereal. No one's going to take it. You can eat it at your own pace. And invariably. They're good boys if they don't eat from the other boys. Cereal box. I'm no, quite... they're allowed to keep in their rooms because that's <laughs> going to happen. Absolutely. I'm learning. I am learning so much. <laughs> it was like so eating funny. more cereal because they wanted three bowls of cocoa in the morning. Like no one actually yeah. wants that. You feel that they, they want just somebody else to have it. More. So, like, it's like the in COVID, like toilet paper craziness, right? Everyone all of a sudden wanted more toilet paper than they could possibly use because they were worried about running out. So you're in Western Australia. Did this happen to you? (laughs) She does have a toilet paper. I was living in Singapore at the time, actually. I moved to Western Australia during COVID. And, yeah, there was definitely toilet paper. So it's just such an example of that when people think there's not going to be enough of something, they want way more than they need. Um, And so we can reduce the scarcity mentality by being like, it's going to be around, promise. Like, you can have it later, you know, if you're... I, I often know when my kids are slowing down. I'm like, I'm having to put that in the fridge. You can have it tomorrow. Um, if it's like a dessert or cake or something, because they're so worried this about is a journey. Would we? So you know, getting from being quite restrictive with with children's eating patterns to getting to the point where yes, you can have it later. <laughs> if it's a journey, can we maybe just create some time? Say, all right, I want you to put the Oreos down now, but in an hour and a half, maybe you can come back and have another one. Well, I would actually recommend just putting them out with other food. Yeah. So rather than them being like a special thing, it's like, oh, you want some Oreos? Cool. Let's have our afternoon tea. Yes. Here's some Oreos. Here's some cheese biscuits. Here's some chopped up fruit. Let's have a snack. Great idea. Um, Try to reduce them being this sort of special thing you only have on their own and you can't really get full on. Like Oreos, you could eat a hot packet, right? They just, they're they're like, they're like magic um and so and McDonald's, it goes in and it dissolves yeah. you just feel yeah. unsatisfied immediately yeah. it's just like part of a snack and yeah. how is it going to make you feel um and yeah with and really trying to make sure that isn't that scarcity mentality of you know it's I not like 
that. Um, I've got afternoon teas in my... One of the things I used to do for the kids when they'd have friends over is I'd do a snack platter. Um, And we still do that like for family board games now. It's like I tempt them to the board games to spend quality time (laughs) because there will be a snack platter. And the snack platter includes stupid things like Cocoa Pops in a like bowl that they'll eat with their fingers and just (laughs) it'll be, you know, and cut up sandwiches and whatever. So I love that idea because you've got healthy, you've got treats on there, you've got just like weird shit from the cupboards that looks like the fanciest thing ever because I'll bring out the nice cups of, you know, the nice cups and the nice plates and we all feel like it's buddy. Yeah, I love that idea, de-glamorising the cookies or the the treat meal as part of we can't do avoidance. So a lot of families want to do avoidance. Get it out of the house. I can't have this. I've got to have it out of the house. That's not going to be life. They're going to go to someone else's house. Or they're going to go to the servo when they've got their own license. Or they're going I to go to love that. Avoidance is we have to teach skills because we just can't do avoidance. And, yes, we do have a problem, like we do have a food culture problem. Like we do have a problem with our food supply around what's cheap and accessible and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's not going to change. So yeah. really helping kids to be able to handle having that food around all the time. Okay. I'm just going to summarise a couple of the things that we've heard. Sorry, Susan, what were you just about to add? Like when we're talking about those foods, like say we use Oreos, they're sort of sweet and they're crumbly and they're creamy in the middle. And mm-hmm. But also we've got like right now what, navel oranges, and they're juicy and they're, yeah. you know, it's winter because we, and so we've got them and we've got say, no, not advertising, but that nice crumbly cheddar and some like, like buttery crackers, like helping kids recognise as well as as we do mm. that actually a lot of this is really delicious in different ways. Yes. So much excitement around like a packet of biscuits that, you know, if you get them on special, they're a dollar. Mm. Let's not blame ourselves for that. But the media no. Is no, no, no. advertising no, no, no. is absolutely done that for us. But we can have our kids sort of actually be excited and find other like just sort of normalish foods exciting. Um, Mr. And Beast to- isn't talking about juicy oranges, right? He's no. talking about oh, and I've got a <laughs> yeah, I have a Mr. Beast fan in my house. <laughs> You know, the, the little tween influencers, they're not talking about the fresh peaches off the tree. They're talking about the... No, no, and unfortunately, are talking all about organic, natural stuff. Um, that's That actually is a bit of a recipe for getting really anxious about food yeah. and that sort of eating disorder. They're doing it. So we're trying theory. to find yeah. this, this different world where it's not either I'm counting my almonds and I'm eating all this food, I'm being really, really strict, or... I'm not paying any attention to nutrition. I'm just eating all the donuts and cake and nothing and nothing yes. else. Yeah. I'm just really trying. And that's often people's been people's experience. They're either on this side of the diet cycle where they're in that sort of honeymoon phase, accounting and working, working, everything's strict and feels great. Or they're at this side of the diet, which is the other side, which is not paying it's any attention off. to nutrition. It's all off. All the foods that I didn't let myself eat here. Yeah. I'm now really driven yeah. to. Yeah. And the, again, our culture has only had, well, the way to stop this eating all the things and not paying any to intuition is to go back on a diet, not realizing actually it's the diet in between. Yeah, yeah. I really try and find a, that sort of why we're sort of like non diet or anti diet dietitian is we don't want to send you around another cycle because even a dietitian giving sort of sensible nutrition advice can so quickly be turned into a diet. So we're yeah. really trying, we're on a different planet here. <laughs> Of that sort of intuitive eating, middle, that ground. middle ground of 
respecting body, having some, paying some attention to nutrition in align with our own values, our whatever we can afford. Holding you a little bit that the word you don't want is actually in the title of what you do. I made conversations we had. I know. What are we going to call ourselves? What is this? Are we nutritional? What are we? (laughs) (laughs) Therapists. Because, you know, in again, so people think dietitians are the food place. Like when I go to a party, like, what do you do? I feel like saying florist. I don't want to tell them I don't. Because then they'll be like, oh, what are you eating? Or, oh, I don't normally eat this. I'm like, oh, I don't care. Um, like it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care what you're not, not interested. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that, yes, it does bother us, but we haven't yet been able to come up with a better name. <laughs> there was something you mentioned earlier before uh, we started recording, actually, and I'd love to come back to that as a nice kind of way of wrapping up all of the things that we've said here. We've actually said a lot, so maybe I'll do a summary as well. But we were talking about focus on the road, not the gutter. Do you yes. want to bring that back, that analogy back, and tell us what? Yeah, what so I, I learned to ride a di- ride a bike when I was thirty eight for the first time since I've been like about twelve. <laughs> um, and my brother, who was teaching me, he gave me this advice of look at where you want to go, not at what you're trying to avoid. Um, and he was absolutely right because as soon as I looked at the gutter, I was in the gutter. If I was like, I want to go between those two posts, but I looked at the post, I'm in the post rather than between the posts. And going back to our culture's obsession with being thin or not being fat and all this sort of stuff, we started looking at, you know, looking at the tree instead of the path next to the tree Um, and when we hit the tree. So everything that we, so we're worried about a child ending up in a larger body, we're we're restricting or we're talking about foods or we're not letting them have stuff. Um, They're then feeling worse in their bodies. They're going to withdraw from physical activities because they're not feeling good in their bodies. They feel like they should be sort of on show. Um, and so actually end up more likely to hit the tree. And the more diets people go on, the higher their sort of, I mean, BMI is a terrible measure of any health things, mm-hmm. but on a research level, the more diets someone goes on, the higher their BMI over time. And we've got people going on diets younger and younger and younger and younger and younger. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever our goal is to manipulate a body, we actually end up taking people away from the health-promoting behaviours that would actually help them feel good in their bodies, eat very diet, yeah, yeah, connected. Um, and so that's what my sort of our recommendation for families is: if you weren't worried about your child's size, what would you want their eating to look like? What would you want their activity to look like? Um, and it's going to be want them chewing the boys, want them feeling good in their bodies, want them moving in ways that feels good, want them eating variety. You know, we want them well, in like whole person well-being. Um, and so that's what we want to be doing. So when we're, that's what we do when we're yeah. working with families, it's like, okay, well, what, what do we want it to look like? Because um, no I one think, wants their little kids counting almonds and I think too, worried about like being How often, fat. like with our children are doing things around, like say child protection at school, like one of the lines that they have for really little children is to trust your tummy, you know. Like yeah. if you get a funny yeah. feeling about like being a tricky a, adult, yeah, yeah, tricky adults, and you're like, at the same time as we're telling them to trust their tummy for something that's like a, ooh, do I feel safe? We're yeah. also saying you can't trust your tummy <laughs> because you want chocolates and chips. But you, you know, like you can't trust it. You've got to be controlling it. Like, well, which one is it? Yes. You know, we can trust it for telling us whether we're safe or not. We can also trust it for telling us whether we're hungry or not. Yeah, um, yeah I think we've just got such such odd language. And 
you know, we're sort of disconnected from like what does normal childhood mm. to adolescence to adulthood look like? There's a period of rapid growth. And like proportions girls, are really different. Yeah, and we girls need to like 15 kilos. And that's like over like a few years. And it's really normal. Yeah. And like if we interfere with that, if we freak out and go, oh, childhood obesity, ah. We're interrupting like a really, really fundamental part of their development. And I mean, I don't know what the number is for boys, but mm. boys grow Similar. as well. Yeah. You know, and their bodies look very different and then they look very different again. They go out, they go up, they Yeah, you know, yeah. Because yeah. in culture we want to jump in and start fixing fixing and doing stuff <laughs> and then we hit the tree. Yeah. Um whereas we can just hold that it's just like we want the same behaviors, we want that same yeah. body trust. Um then people will grow into the body that's meant for them. And that actually comes back to the, you know, how do we how do we trust them yeah. <laughs> when we don't trust our own? And it's a big picture. And so that's quite often we'll, you know, end up, we'll have a child who's referred to us and it can be because um, their GP or the pediatrician is concerned about their weight. Um, and quite often we'll pause about the child and spend some sessions with mum and dad um, just around noticing the impact that, their language, their behaviours, their, yeah. their, their stories and having... This thing bringing up for them, yeah, you know, yes, yeah. I think the finally also um, we often forget developmental stages. Kids are little concrete thinkers. Back to that prefrontal cortex. We can't educate them into making healthy choices because okay. they have the capacity to make a choice right now about what they want to eat based on some theoretical abstract concept of nutritional health in the future. So that's sort of coming back to the parents' job of providing the what, the where, and the when attending to their preferences but not pandering to them all that sort of those sort of framework and then letting the kids decide how much um if any and that's there's um if you want to look more into that framework ellen satter um is the feeding um therapist dietitian from the states who's come up with that sort of division of responsibility um and it's so helpful because it can look completely different in two different households but the principles hold yeah of course. Um, so that's yeah. been something quite successful when i've been working with family in divided families in two houses of sending sort of here's some framework principles and then you can apply it to your own house however that's you right. want to that's right um, I've taken away so much here. I love you. You've literally just said we can't educate them into making healthy choices. I love that because that's a really great reminder of the children don't dictate this. We we have the power to dictate this and, and we actually need to make all of the um, right. The, we're the grown-ups. <laughs> yeah, we're grown-ups. And there's so much pressure in that and it's <laughs> horrible and it's it. But it can be fun too. Um, I loved the idea of um, not just having the the treat foods. I've written it down like, don't make treats lonely. Oh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that is so cute. Don't let the treats be lonely. Let's make sure we surround them with other choices as well. And perhaps then you've got different textures. You've got different tastes on the, on the plate. It's not just the sweet of the Oreo. You'll have something salty. You'll have something fresh. You'll have something crunchy. You'll have something... <laughs> there's a lot of food driven and sort of focused on those sort of sweet drunky foods than, than others um and we have to we actually have to have it more um yeah. in those, and then that reduces the food size. mango is super sweet and absolutely lovely so yeah they're, they're great options yeah. Um, yeah. i loved the idea of creating multiple coping strategies so if your child is quite anxious or even unknowingly like not necessarily displaying anxious behavior but of course they can't um 
So it's about the stress tolerance, right? Creating multiple coping strategies. So yes, you can go and enjoy an ice cream with the children, but you can also think of other ways to reward, which might be let's just sit and watch something together. Why don't we have a read of this together? Why don't we have a little dance party in the kitchen together? Why don't we prepare a meal together? Let's go and yeah, go to the park. Go to the something. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot here around non-judgmental um, exploration. So having a pause, having an ask, having a listen, having a check-in um, on our buddies. Um, I love this. I'm going to come back to this multiple times in my own home. If you didn't care about your child's size, how would you want them to eat? <sighs> going to like in the face what? of my partner. <laughs> question so some parts like if I could tell if I could wave a magic wand and no matter what you did between now and the day you die your size doesn't change no matter where you are now whether you're happy with it or not how would you actually eat what would you actually do because that's often when we realize what our actual values are around food because yeah. no one actually feels amazing it kind of scares me a little bit though when we lecture to dietetic students um, and we want to help them go are you giving evidence-based nutritional advice or are you actually just focusing on weight? Going like if the client sitting in front of you had a, again, with all the disclaimers about BMI, had a BMI of 23, what advice do you give? Because there's no condition that only affects people in larger bodies. So yeah. if someone's sitting in front of you with high cholesterol and a high BMI, are you at least ver- giving them the advice you'd give someone with high cholesterol and a low BMI? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like so often we, we mix the actual the guts of things by just seeing it as a weight size. Yeah. All right, ladies, how can people work with the non-dietitians? How can they hear more about what you're doing, learn more from you? Have you written anything? Tell us. Sure. So together we are Meg and Susan, um, and we have one on social media or meganandsusan.co. Um, is our website website. Um, we have a podcast called life's too short to count almonds and it really um, is early on so we've i think we've only 10 episodes or so that comes out once so you can catch up that's right (laughs) um we are looking to um launch our first course in august which we're excited about which is sort of like introduction the questions you're asking like i don't trust my body how do i get there um it's really sort of foundational before you even launch into any sort of non-dieting or intuitive eating how do we prepare the groundwork for that yeah Yeah. so that'll be and will that be run live with you or will that be self-paced that's a great question. It's mostly self. We're looking at self-paced with some live updates so, throughout. Yeah. If you do right. it live for four weeks, right. um, there will be some live stuff, but it can be self-paced. Right. So we can find time in between the. So when the children are not with you, you can create some time. Love that. Yeah. Amazing. So meganandsusan.co, you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook, you've got a course coming out soon and a podcast to listen to, which is wonderful. Ladies, thank you so much for being here and sharing all of that. I've got so much. I feel like writing a white paper off the back of just what I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very grateful. I'm sure there's plenty of people who want to do that. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. A couple of times as as you're both talking, I'm like, but yeah, but where's your book? I just need to, which chapter have uh, been in your book? So <laughs> that might have to be on 2024's agenda if you haven't written a book yet. Yes. Yeah, well, what's weird because so we both have our own practices still, which are quite full with um, yeah. with so supervising other dietitians and seeing clients. So we need to sort of uh, look at revise um, our loads and find some more yes. time for this stuff. Well, the other way I can get that information is just binge your podcast. So I'll do that too. Yeah. 
right. Well, maybe if we manage to train the AI properly, it can write the book after listening to it. <laughs> True. We um, did play with it, and oh, it's it, terrible. At the uh, it wrote like it wrote like a little jaunty email that completely missed all of the content. Like really, really misunderstood it and signed off. Stay, Stay hungry. hungry. <laughs> oh, oh wow, that's fantastic! We're still running our own emails for a little bit longer. That's the robot is not taking over just yet. I love it. <laughs> All right, have a great day ahead. Thanks so much for being here. We will. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope you took something of value out of this episode. I'm your host, Becca Maxwell, and you can find me on the web at dodivorceright.com or on Instagram at dodivorceright. I look forward to connecting with you there.